and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. My name is Vry, they, them. I'm a contributor at Anime Feminist. You can find me on Twitter where I post the places I freelance at Writer Vry, or you can find the other podcast I co host at Trash Pod. And with me once again, I have Megan and Marion, if you two want to reintroduce yourselves. All right. Uh, my name is Megan. Uh, I a manga reviewer for eight years, an occasional anafem uh, writer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brainchild129 or find my reviews at the Manga Test Drive. Hello, I'm Marion. I write and I make videos. You can find me on Twitter at Eccentric Marion, and I have a YouTube channel called Marion B, where I upload videos mostly on retro anime. Nice. Yes, and speaking of, we are back with our Glass Mask watch-along. This time we saw episodes 6 through 11, uh, which covered a heck of a lot of ground. Just really tripling down on that compression uh, issue that we talked about last week. So I guess to kind of dip our toes into the water, uh, how are y'all feeling about this batch of episodes in a general sense? This was wild. Like, even if... (laughs) Technical issues had hadn't prevented me from making predictions about this stretch. They wouldn't have even been close to what actually happened. Yeah. Yeah, we've covered it, like, in about seven episodes, this show covers what would probably be an entire core, <laughs> I feel like, for this type of story. Also, based on a throwaway line, apparently at least a year has passed since the beginning of the show. I spent a lot of this stretch wondering exactly how old Maya is. Because at one point it looks like she's in a different, she's in a a high school uniform. But also that could just be how she dresses. I got very confused. No, no, no. She's preparing for high school. They mentioned that specifically. So so yes, she is 14, a.k.a. standard shoujo heroine age. They do, but then in like episode eleven, she's got the the dark skirt and the white shirt with a with a red bow, which looks like a uniform, but maybe it's not. Did more time skip? I don't know. It is a uniform. She's it's not just it's just not her high school uniform yet. I mean, if I remember correctly, I think her high school uniform is not that different. But she's not in high school yet. She's not in high school yet. All right. So she's 14 through this stretch. That's good to know. Good to, to situate. But the fact that I really wasn't expecting them to knock down the school, I'll be honest. I assumed that this would be a plucky save the theater plot for a, a while longer. Like, that's at least yeah. the end of the first 12 that yeah. you wait to get to that, but no. Doesn't matter you won first in the popularity poll. You didn't win the contest, so down goes the school, and down goes basically Sukakage's wealth. All of her fortune was in that building. The mob came and took everything she had, thanks to discount Gendo. <laughs> I know he came first, but, you know, events occur in the order in which I perceive them. But even before that, we went through base. what was... It's basically the equivalent of a sports tournament arc in just the course of a couple of episodes. I know we discussed this previously that this show does bear some resemblance to a lot of like shonen battle tournament tropes, but that that particular stretch, like six and seven, really, really made it clear this is basically a sports show without sports and boys. <laughs> yeah, it has some of the, like some of those similar traits of 
a, a lot of the high skill things that your characters are doing are things that the audience maybe has only a very passing familiarity with. So you have to have characters on screen to look impressed and explain in detail why this is such a cool thing that we should also be impressed by. And rivals that show up out of nowhere and don't really appear again. Yeah, in that sense, it sort of feels like sh sports shoujo too, because you have stuff like Attack Number One, and that's exactly how it feels. Like it's an extremely intense show. There are thousands of rivals, and no one has any. No one has any chill in that show. No time for chill. There are. All of the secondary rivals for Maya who who appear throughout this stretch are incredibly weak in terms of writing. They are just walking plot contrivances and they know it and you can sense their despair. <laughs> I can't help but feel a little bad for them. Except not because they're basically one mustache short of a mustache twirling villain. Yeah. Yeah. That's also true. And that is certainly like that is definitely the part of this run that I enjoyed the least because whenever there's a character who gets drawn up purely to make a single bad thing happen that Maya has to overcome and then they immediately go away, it's it goes beyond the the heightened melodrama that I accept and enjoy about this show and into oh well that's bad writing. <laughs> you couldn't think of a sustained way to do this, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of characters who just exist to make Maya's life harder for a little bit, and that's it. This whole stretch is about making Maya's life harder because, you know, as we noted, the theater is gone. So basically, they have to be poor for a while and actually focus on things like school and part-time jobs instead of acting. And oh, how they endure their their poverty and such nobility, which for me was such such an interesting throwback because... This is something I discussed in the uh, the article I did on early shoujo manga that a lot of the really early ones from the 50s uh, dealt with heroines who the, their point was basically to endure, to suffer nobly against all the slings and arrows of fate until someone else rescues them from their fate. And that is very much Maya's story arc here. Yeah, it's... Let's say interesting. Let's use that word. Um, <laughs> how the show treats poverty as like this sort of hat for Maya because we're told that you know they're they're living in poverty but what we see isn't materially different than than the way it was before you know Tsukikage can't go to the hospital um until their mysterious benefactor steps in but she refused to go to the hospital when they had the dormitory too and we don't see enough of the interior of the house for it to feel meaningfully different and also all of the secondary characters seem to be doing the actual work to keep the roof over their heads while Maya gets to go and continue doing acting I feel so bad for Ray or well, hey Ray's doing okay for herself she's she's got a part-time cafe job and she she's definitely building up a clientele she's basically the princely one at her cafe yeah but she's not acting everybody else has given up on acting to do work and, and we're told that like it's really hard because they don't have a practice space but Maya's still getting work Maya's the only one well of course she's the heroine of course my mistake I it's another one of those moments where I wondered, do these characters matter more in the manga, or is this just a case of Maya needs a support posse to tell her she's doing a good job? I don't know. We'll probably never know, because <laughs> old shoujo doesn't get brought over. Unless you're Moto Hagio. Yeah, they are kind of the speed wagons to the, her Jonathan. Yeah, I kind of suspect that 
it's not that different in the manga. Like, I have that suspicion. It's too bad. And then the poverty stuff comes back again with, with Ayumi, where, you know, she's pretending to be poor to get oh, deeper wow. at her acting. <laughs> that was amazing. The whole sequence where she cuts uh-huh. her hair dramatically. I loved it. It's it's so inc- and her hair sparkles cuz got to have that important haircut and it has to be done badly, of course. <laughs> That's where you have your the shoujo aesthetic. It's all so so sparkly. Like it's not necessary, but I enjoy it. Uh-huh. It's just what that section was very odd to me because I want to be like, uh, oh, it's the eighties animeness of it. But at the but like I can't say that because that's just how acting is, where you do this it's the same as when she uh when Maya gets that bit part and, and ties up her leg so she could really understand this ennobling pain. Like this idea of doing casual tourism through more marginalized experiences to make you a deeper person and that's so great of you the actor is definitely still to this day a stain on the profession (laughs) so it's very interesting to see it in the context of this super over-the-top sparkly 80s anime for children it's like oh yeah no that's real adult people think that this is an okay thing to do okay (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's okay to make yourself sick to get into little women or to tie your leg up so you can understand what a disabled girl's experience is like. Or, you know, th- this is fine. This is fine as long as you're Sukakage. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, meta acting, it's still super romanticized, though. Oh, God. Oh, highly. The, you know, the fact that nobody, nobody for a second is like, should we hire disabled actors? No, no. Nah. <laughs> No, this has to be her moment to shine. And like this idea that that it's brave to play, you know, a queer character or a disabled character or or you know, something that is less than a beautiful leading lady. Like those are a gateway for for a a beautiful able-bodied person to to let their own innate specialness shine through. It's weird to see that show up here. Yeah, it's also like they want to pick something that's dramatic and hard, so they go there without necessarily giving it a second thought. I found it interesting that, you know, we sort of talked about the influence of of the plays fr- that were real-world productions in the last batch. But this one, uh, in these episodes, at least as far as I was able to find through my research, the only actual real play that gets referenced is King Lear, whereas the other ones are, I think, all made up, or at least when I googled them, you know, Glass Mask was the only search return that I was getting, and some of them have fairly nondescript titles, but still. Yeah, same here, and they all seem to be fairly basic, almost fairy tale style ones. There was kind of a theme that I noticed, at least, you know, between the bits of dialogue that we were able to see on screen. And then with King Lear, you have, there's sort of that continuing idea of, you know, unappreciated beauty or talent, but also kind of father-daughter type stories, which is very creepy with Hayami still (laughs) existing. (laughs) I mean, again, this is a daddy long legs story. He he is both about, I mean, I feel like they want him to be both, the romantic 
the um, the love interest and a father figure. So, uh... <laughs> kudos to his secretary, whose entire job is to like come on screen and be like, "Shouldn't you be doing your job, are, sir? Sh- not, you know, sir. Are are you thinking about fucking that fourteen year old again? Oh sir, God. that's fucked up." Uh, and sir, then she leaves. Sir, why won't you notice me? Please, please notice oh, me. God. Oh yeah, it's not just her job, uh, as dictated by Hayami's father, to keep an eye on him. They make it pretty clear that she's got the hots for him too, and it's becoming a kind of a weird love triangle. Yeah, which I don't enjoy. No, it, it's also weird to have this father-daughter thing because really the the stronger theme here is kind of mother and daughter, or at least kind of substitute mother and daughter. Maya gets two this time. She does. We have a. Uh... The return of of Tsukikage, although she's mostly out of commission because she has dramatic she she has dramatic anime disease. It's a killer. <laughs> I mean, not it's not it's not killer. It's just enough to to create drama, but it's not enough to actually put her um put her in moral peril. <laughs> just enough to get her out of the plot for a while because. Um, Michui or the writers of the anime realized, oh, we don't really have anything for her to do at this point. <laughs> so she gets a, a new stage mother, if you will, in the form of a, I remember her name, Kiko Harada? Yes. Harada, yeah. And Harada is like Sukakage, but with the drama toned down from like 11 to like 5. <laughs> it's all in her hair. She puts it up in that traditional hairstyle and it times it down. I mean, she's intense, she's a strict, but she hasn't tried to kill Maya yet, so... Yeah, she doesn't believe in acting less than through abuse, of which we have two prime examples in this stretch, with, you, act like you're a tree! I'll throw a rock at you, rocks don't flinch! (laughs) (laughs) Will a tree scream? Well, to be fair, I suppose it wouldn't. (laughs) And let me push you down the stairs! Oh, you landed on the leg that's supposed to be disabled, you can't do that! And the, and the Maya immediately covering, you know, justifying her actions like, oh, she did this to help me. <laughs> okay. that That's one way of phrasing it. Absolutely. Uh-huh. The, Harada was super interesting to me, though. Like, aside of the fact that she straight up fired uh, a performer within days of the performance, which is a horrible thing to do to the rest of your cast. She's kind of the way we introduce that idea um, you know, at the very end of this run of episodes that Maya's a really dangerous person to work with, potentially, because she's a scene stealer. Vandalism and I on stage. Really interesting. <laughs> it's such a good scene. Like, it doesn't need to be so dramatic, but it is. This entire show is, they don't need to go that hard, but they do every time. They do. Well, that's why I kind of didn't expect them to bring this up because, you know, it's the kind of show where it's about the heroine climbing to the highest heights through the greatest adversity. And but now they've brought up that, you know, good theater is really an ensemble group work where everybody balances out, like gives the gives a role, you know, certain roles are supposed to shine in whatever scene so that the audience gets the most reaction out of the play. And Maya doesn't do that. She's a really good actor, but she, she draws all of the focus to her, uh, even when it derails the scene she's in. So I'm 
really interested to see where they go with that. Especially since this comes right after the the single episode where she gets a bit role on a movie, which goes to show that even in the 80s, Japan just kept shoving idols into movies and pretending they can act. (laughs) But she's like, they make her climb up like two flights of stairs for this single scene (laughs) and she completely steals the show. Which again, is just another one of those brilliant shoujo melodrama moments, but it also makes her kind of a crappy extra. Like... And what is the experience of watching this film where all of a sudden the movie just stops for a full two minutes to do a long take? I mean, she has sparkly tears. What what more do you want? Are you not moved by her perseverance of this inspiring disabled girl? Who is on screen for less than a minute. She's a very minor character. And go. I mean, to be fair, I do have a lot of actors that I love personally who are not leading roles but end up being you know that guy quote-unquote actors where they're they they do crappy parts and crappy movies and they're a delight every time they show up and they bring it but that's not quite what maya's got going on here no she's not a character actor and then meanwhile you have ayumi who's kind of the opposite situation where she's too recognizable as Ayubi the star so she's decided to go on her poverty tourism journey to to learn to play uh pants roles in the prince and the pauper of all things i'm very curious i just wanted to sit and watch that performance frankly because yeah they say she plays both roles and how does that work (laughs) you just put a big mirror on screen I mean, they Maya did an entire one-person show. I was very glad that somebody brought up that one-person shows already exist. Because I was about to say, did, did Maya invent the one-man show? <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that? Glass mask? And then it gets disqualified on a technicality because some old guy made a fuss. And he's gone now. We haven't seen him in several episodes. Onotary is the worst in that he's just kind of gone. Onodera is a bitch. He exists to be a bitch. And that's it. Yes. I mean, he's very efficient at it, to his credit. <laughs> he hasn't... He hasn't gotten... I guess he I guess he did technically achieve his goal. Sukikage's school is gone now, but he was ostensibly helping Hayami get hold of the Crimson Goddess. A show that cannot... In, uh, I hope they, they don't intend to ever show us any of it, because at this point, it cannot possibly live up to the way people talk it up. Oh no, this point is virtually mythical, particularly the way Sukakage herself describes it. Like, to play this role, you have to become something other than human. Yeah, it's sort of the ultimate role. It's, some, it's something that's mystical, something that's otherworldly. And in this sense, it kind of, it kind of remi- reminds me of this 1950 movie all about Eve where you oh. have where you have an upcomer actress who who supposed who I mean she wants to be a star she wants what Betty Davis character has right and she's supposed to be extremely good and how do you have someone who is so extremely good that she steals the show from someone like Betty Davis Betty right Davis. it's impossible how do you do that and they don't they don't even try. They they don't they never show you how she acts. They just tells you. Like she, they leave that to your imagination. 
And I think that's something that they are doing right now with the Crimson Goddess, and it's why it works. Otherwise, it wouldn't. It's also becoming something of a almost a Pavlovian response. Like someone says Crimson Goddess, and both Maya and or Ayumi just instantly go into rival mode. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, I know last time uh, we mentioned that there's a surprisingly low amount of like Yuri subtext than you would expect. That's not so true for this stretch. <laughs> Between, I mean, mm. not only do you have Rei and her fangirls at the cafe, you have Ayumi basically turning to the shoujo manga equivalent of that Kate Beaton comic about the pirate and his nemesis. <laughs> nemesis comic is good. Yes, it is. I'm not saying that Ayumi has a picture of Maya that she carries with her all the time and puts on the pillow next to her as she sleeps, but she's not far from it either. She give it time. <laughs> give it a few more months. She doesn't even need to do that. Like all she needs to do is look at the stars, and she sees yes. Maya manifesting. <laughs> Bro, is it gay to see visions of your rival against the night sky? <laughs> Bro, it it is interesting. Uh, I I w- I can't wait for them to interact again, and yet at the same time. The show really knows what it's doing and keeping them apart, like building that tension. Cause they so they haven't really talked since they did that acting exercise together. It's just a lot of them watching each other perform. Yeah, they don't even interact. They just watch each other perform. What the show has a really interesting theme that's developing. Uh, I've noticed about like how it uses theater, both as like. It's a way for characters to get away from their Im- from their emotions and their inner turmoils, and also it becomes like almost this stand-in for actual communication at certain points. Like Maya and Ayumi uh, don't really talk; they just watch one another, and that feels like they're getting closer and understanding each other as rivals. But also, you know, Maya and Sakura Koji. He wants to tell her how he feels, but oh they're just goodness. doing lines at one another, so it's oh not getting goodness. through. Oh, that moment. That that was so sweet. Poor doomed you. <laughs> the problem this is Maya has, kind of Maya has nothing in her head but acting, so she can't understand that you is basically declaring that I love you, please go out with me. <laughs> they could go on like multiple dates and she'd be like, Oh, we're dating? They've they've been on multiple They have a romantic boat ride in the park. <laughs> they go to the the carnival. They eat crepes. Romantic crepes. I think they <laughs> called it a date. I don't know how much clearer he has to be. He's not even being a nice guy. She's just dense. She's just that oblivious. I mean, Maya herself get gets jealous and she asks. She asks him about her his oh, relationship goodness, with Ayumi. Yes. The, the first episode of this stretch where it's like, oh no, he caught Ayumi when she fainted. Therefore, that clearly means he loves her and not me. Oh no, wait, it's fine. <laughs> no, it's fine. That's just, I, I don't want the lead performer in, in our show to go down. <laughs> then we're all screwed. <laughs> this acting is a team effort. And in contrast to that, of course, we still have Hayami being a creep, as always, getting to the point where you're not sure whether he thinks he's a, he loves Maya or he wants to possess her or a bit of both and that he's both determined to tear down her life and make her submit to him and join his agency but also keeps adoring her from afar and helping her behind the scenes. 
it's he's very confused and i'm i get that i'm supposed to invest in the duality of his obsession and maybe he doesn't even understand it but you know i'm still stuck on i i cannot put aside the fact that she's 14 i refuse <laughs> it's I mean, creepy i mean i think the show is kind of trying to f- to follow through with this image of Masumi being someone who's capable of being ruthless to get what he wants because he was raised to be this way or whatever. But it's supposed to be mostly in relation to the play that he has to he has to get the rise the rise off. But then he sees the girl struggling and can help but feel for her and want to help her, which shows he's not so cold after all, because Masumi is supposed to be a redeemable asshole and not the goddamn creep that he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always likes to play it like, oh, poor him. He feels he has to play this role to satisfy his father. But the thing is, he, he doesn't. He, he always has a choice. He could just choose to not be a jerk. Yeah, it's... And if these were both, if these characters were both teenagers, you know, if this was like a Takahashi manga, I'd under- I'd understand. Like, ah, oh, in the moment, he says a dumb, hot-headed thing and then regrets it immediately after. But you're in your twenties, and she's a child. <laughs> Be a grown-up. The worst part is, this is shoujo, man. They could have had him. He Masumi could have been a teenager who's extremely rich and has, uh. An amount of power no teenager will have because it showed you like you have this this kind of characters a lot in not just in shoujo but in anime in general. And hmm. I, I don't think it helps that they keep doing the same scene between him and Maya, where where they'll confront one another and she will immediately accuse him and you know throw things at him and run away. And he'll stand there stoically and take it and then immediately do something philanthropic. And it's the same every time. And it's so repetitive. I think it's like, hilarious. Well, I think it's hilarious where, where Maya is attacking him and he supposedly doesn't feel anything like a normal human being. He just stands there <laughs> doing nothing. You're right. <laughs> and she, she calls him, him with fruit and slaps him with a bouquet. A moment which and- I loved. <laughs> Why? Please do something different, Glass Mask. If you insist on carrying on this charade where she doesn't know that it's him, which I'm fine with, because as soon as that, as soon as she learns that, we go into the Badlands. Yeah, as soon as she learns the true identity of Mr. Purple Rose. Oh, dear. I'm just hoping that the anime ends before then, frankly. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, well, if it's well, Maya is not a particularly bright girl, so... <laughs> she might forget. <laughs> All she has on her mind is the Crimson Goddess, and she has to be on her toes, because apparently, if if Ayumi gets good enough, she can usurp daughter position in this weird, weird grooming scenario. <laughs> it is interesting how they, like, the way they position the Crimson Goddess as this incredibly memorable singular performance when it's a stage show that doesn't seem to have been recorded in any way. Like in reality, there's a very limited time frame on how long Tsukikage can be remembered for playing the Crimson Goddess, even if nobody else ever performs it. 
be, like it was it was nowadays we're so used to ah you record it and you do it for for a film or even just a, a recorded stage performance but it's being t- it's like this clash of ephemerality and the supposed immortality of the role hmm true and this is something that comes up in the history of theater like you can read so much about like legendary actors like sarah Bernhardt or uh, a lot of the actors who specialize in things like sherlock holmes and all we have are eyewitness accounts and reviews of the time we don't know what sarah Bernhardt's acting was like we can only read about it but that unto itself almost makes it just as legendary it just mm. like the crimson goddess exists only in these records and in the imaginations and memories of others. And so despite the fact that theater acting by its very nature as live performance is very fleeting, very ephemeral, if it is memorable enough and unique enough, it can live in cultural memory. And I'm surprised they don't that. And I mean, maybe that's too heady to get into in a show that's ultimately meant for kids like this is more of, of a rakugo this is i think that rakugo <laughs> shinju dives into but like this idea of is it selfish for a performer to to hold on to this text that they made iconic and and when it's a it's a living text that you're not really supposed to meant to read to get the full for performance like do you preserve that the the well-regarded singular performance and let it die or do you let it you know do you let more people see it even if it risks diluting the the talent of the people who get to perform it it's kind of interesting and so not what this show is interested in (laughs) that's definitely too deep for this show (laughs) i can dream i did i didn't have time to do some research but when maya is gave me a brain melt during the middle part of this episode where she goes around cold calling acting companies. Yes, because <laughs> oh. she, she has never heard of auditioning because, of course, Suka Kage has never made her audition. She just says, you're playing this role, and she does. So she just goes around like, hey, can you give me a job? And they're like, no, you have to audition, you, you strange young woman. But at the same time, they're also like, you know, which theater are you with? So it made me curious about how the uh, how theater companies in the 1980s work, whether you kind of whether it's like comedy troops, you know, like the UCB and such, where you you kind of get together with other performers where you're known for. And that is a sort of rep or if are open auditions as much a thing. It, it made me want to read more into that. And I am sorry, listeners, that I did not read up on that before the podcast today. Or another analogy uh, comparable to, like, an entertainment agency like Ondera. Yeah, I mean, that is, you're right, that is a, a, an explicit tension going on where where they're, uh, where part of what Hayami is, uh, is, is, is on about is they want Maya to uh, be represented by them. So I guess that that is a considerable element. As in acting with so many things, it's not necessarily what you can do it's who you know and who you're connected to and she's just fortunate enough that she's connected to this crazy legendary actress and her theater troupe yeah it does blur the lines of like you know how much of it is she's just that good and her talent shade radiates through and like and also like she has had some wicked good coincidences since she got started with her acting career 
you can entire argue that this entire show pretty much lives and dies on coincidence. Yes. Yes, you could. Or maybe convenience. <laughs> that too. That too. It is. I can't decide. I think I love the way that they just eventually stopped giving a fuck about how much material they clearly had to fly through where the narrator just comes on to be like, and then Maya did this for a while. We <laughs> don't have time to show it. But rest assured, they were all working. And it was very hard that they didn't have a place to act, we assure you. I mean, at no point in the show you have any idea of how much time it's supposed to have passed. Like, she goes and auditions for a movie, and the movie is out in, what, weeks? How much time was supposed to have to pass? <laughs> yeah, I noticed like, that, that stuff, too. That stuff takes years. <laughs> but she didn't age, she didn't, she didn't age a month. I don't know how much time was supposed to have passed. Which is, like, on the one hand, you would think, oh, well, it's a choice because it's, you know, the, that comic book time or it's the the eternal sensation of, of youth and you're thinking your best years are going to last forever. But, and, you know, it seems like you'll never be grown up and then it's here before you know it. But then at the same time, they they put so much emphasis on on how fleeting, like, an actor, particularly a, a, a woman's time frame of their career is because you have all these older women who Sukikage can't act anymore and, and these women who trans positioned into management roles so it's it's very odd <laughs> it's very odd for motherhood we actually get to see a little more of ayumi's family which is something i did want to see more of and the mm. dynamic between them and her mother in particular is really fascinating because while it's a little bit stiff and formal again it's not like it's not like her parents are pressuring her into this role as this fabulous actress and they're honestly kind of supportive and even when Ayumi's like well I'm going to become a the greatest actress ever and outdo my mother her mom's like okay yep and, and it's almost kind of heartwarming a little bit Did I told you too that they were supportive <laughs> <laughs> they are yeah. fine it's good it's nice it's just so unexpected it's fine where's I mean, Ayumi oh she's I mean, in the I garden grammatically cutting her hair oh that's nice <laughs> I mean, they're probably the chillest people in the entire show. Ayumi's haircut did make me want to die a little bit, though, because it it looks like the terrible wig they placed on the actress in Flowers in the Attic after that that story's <laughs> dramatic haircutting scene. Honestly, it doesn't look all that different from Ray's, but I just chalk that up to bad late 70s hair. What can you do? <laughs> Why hasn't Ray gone to join the Takarazuka is my question, really. It's true. It feels like that girl has, she, a, uh, has a future in pants rolls. She could make a killing in that market. And yet she's, she's doing straight plays, which mostly don't seem to have roles for the type of role she is playing. <laughs> Very confused. <laughs> this show is too straight for Ray. It truly uh -huh. is. It's it's very sad. Ray, Ray needs to be in review Starlight. <laughs> She'd be happier there. <laughs> these these shows. Speaking of shonen, which you know we were talking a little bit off about off mic. It is amazing how fast these episodes fly by. Partly because everything happens so much. 
I, I had a good time. I guess that kind of brings us to talking about next time. You know, these are these episodes are a little bit shorter than what we normally do, but Glass Mask is a little bit of a short, weird anime, so I think that's okay. It's short and intense. We're recreating the Glass Mask experience. It's meta. Yeah. Around these episodes, though, there was something that really piqued my attention. And, mm. and it's interesting how when they're acting in a play, there are details like close-ups at, uh, at their shaky hands or very subtle shifts in expressions that elevate the acting that we can see because we're watching a TV show, right? But mm. that's, it's not like the audience will be able to catch those details, but the show acts as if they do. I mean, they are very small, intimate theaters, but yeah, definitely the people bug up in the nosebleeds are, are not going to get the, the subtle shift. Yeah, like, it's, it's theater, but the show uses, like, TV or film language to elevate the, the performances. And for me, that was, I mean, it really piqued my attention. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. The, I, I do love that it has... A moment. It spends the entirety of the last episode focused on the drama of the realest terror in anyone who's ever done a play, even back, even in high school, of when a prop f- fucks up <laughs> and you got to cover. Like that was great. I really loved that scene. It's I, I, I think those are becoming my favorite. The scenes is just when in the middle of it being. St- so extremely the most it finds a way to to genuinely kind of capture the emotional experience of of what it feels like to do performance even not on a professional level but just if you've been involved in that world at all like there are some really emotionally resonant moments that are neat yes whether it's you know the backstage panic of things not coming together whether it's props or failing on stage or whether it's just almost collapsing the moment you get off the stage because oh you just drop the character like a ton of bricks okay the show does need more more respect for the backstage uh, production crew though (laughs) i mean it's really the show does focus almost exclusively on the acting to the point that where maya goes alone on the stage it feels like the the special effects were magic and only at the end, you had like a throwaway line. Of, oh, oh yes, these people help a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, those first episodes it. where the troop from Hokkaido, which is clearly got more kind of a Cirque du Soleil-ish thing going on with a lot more like tumbling and like dramatic poses and all that basically serve as her impromptu sound crew for her impromptu one-woman show. Yeah, they've had to completely redo the light cues because the, there's not the rest of the crew here anymore. <laughs> Justice for backstage crew. Yeah, that's one thing, and one thing that I will give to the 2005 version, which I like considerably less than the 80s version. And in this performance, they really show what 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 is happening backstage. So it doesn't feel like magic. Like you can really see, oh, so that that's what that's how they're doing this, and it, it's a neat detail. 
I mean, it is really fun to watch, you know, the first time when you're an actor, just to that that entire um single show that she does is really captivating and well done, especially the actress playing Maya sells it really well. But, you know, once you think about it, it's it's it seems like a less effective choice to frame it for from the point of view of an audience when this is so much supposedly a show about craft. And it seems like Glass Mask kind of slips back and forth on that line when it's convenient to it, basically. <laughs> well, I'm not sure which version was better, but I uh, I will say again that the soundtrack really, really elevates this show. Like, it knows when when it has to go all out and it knows when silence is the best choice. Which, again, it's really that really stood out to me when I was watching the 2005 version because it really, the soundtrack really doesn't compare. They really don't know how to use it. They have soundtrack that sounds like elevator music. They have mm. one, one part, one part of the soundtrack, which is dedicated for Masumi. It sounds like that Instagram pur purple filter. It really zooms in and it just, it really, <laughs> it gets me out of the show. And it has a narrator that sounds like the, the same narrator from Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Like, the dude has that, he, ha, he has that vibe. Like, distant and historical? No, the way he talks, like, the way he narrates, it sounds like I'm, it sounds like I'm watching Legend of the Galactic Heroes whenever he talks. And <laughs> again, I mean, the, the 2005 version has its merits. I just feel very strongly. About this, about preferring the the 80s version. It's it's a trade off because like when you want to, something has to give in the type of story that Glass Mask is. Where if you want to focus in on the hard work of, of stagecraft and those little details, you kind of have to. Then you also start turn turning your eye towards the details of the everything happens so much and why is this about Sukikage abusing Maya for. But it totally works out in the end. <laughs> yeah, this show that this show definitely requires you not to think too much. It is it is almost entirely skating by on its aesthetic and the passionate emotions that you cannot think about for even a second. It's like all of the shakier parts of Shishigi Yugi turned up to like twelve. <laughs> which which I enjoy very much. I am I suspect that I would not enjoy it so much on a rewatch because I'd be thinking about things. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just don't rewatch it too soon because I have seen this show more than twice, I think. I think this is the third time I'm watching it. And I have become a little desynthetized to how crazy it is. But it's still captivating to me. Like, it's still... I'm still entertaining. I, just, I mean, I certainly... I'm certainly eager to keep watching it. You know, like, we've got... Next time we're doing... Let's see, we did 6 to 11 last this time. So, so next time we'll be doing episodes 12 to 17, which is another six-episode a stretch so i assume that by the time we get through those six episodes maya will have graduated high school <laughs> i'm almost scared to make predictions for what's in this next stretch like 
I, I certainly have hopes. I hope we, we see more of Ayumi. I hope we actually get some Ayumi-centric episodes. Like, we actually get more into her headspace. Because I feel like that's something that's been missing to really build up the rivalry. Because at this point, it's feeling like Poochie and the fireworks factory. A little bit. What I, what I can say is that in, it never slows down. And the rivalry is definitely important. Also, it's really going to get crazy because the next episode preview says they're putting on Wuthering Heights, which, oh boy, you want to talk drama. Uh, uh, my wife was sitting in the room with me, and as soon as she heard the phrase Wuthering Heights, she got instinctively mad. <laughs> she, she, she was in a, a college class where it, it was a theory class where they taught every lens of critical theory by having them reread Wuthering Heights again and then reinterpret it through a new lens. Oh she my. hates that book so much. <laughs> Whereas I just thought of Kate Bush and really the, the intensity of something like Kate Bush is a shockingly good match for a show like this. I mean, Kate Bush is the most. And Glass Mask is like the most. Much like Glass Mask. There you go. My, my for real prediction is, though, is that I have a sinking suspicion that by the time we get to, like, episode 17 or 18, we're going to get back to the 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 per the uh, the purple rose reveal thing. I feel like we can only avoid it so much longer. <sighs> and then we'll have to deal with the drama and the angst and the how does she feel about this? Although this was this would have been only like what? 10 volumes into the manga. That's awfully soon for a reveal like that. You could stretch that out for years. Maybe she'll get amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this show adapts... It feels like this show adapts so much, but at the same time, so little. You will get what, what I mean later. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, I mean, this is eight years into the run of the series, but... It's also a series that has only had 50 volumes over almost as many years, so it's hard to say. It it, it feels like mm, probably won't end up being that much hmm. when all is said and done. The only thing I feel like is absolutely certain that's going to happen is that there will be more men who will just be terrible to Maya and Tsukakage and all the women around them and they will be the worst <laughs> that sounds right I am I, I'm 50-50 on whether Tsukikage uh, dies I guess probably not because we've we've taken this this moment to, to be for, for us as the audience to be reassured that she is in a fancy hospital and well taken care of but uh what happens to the Crimson Goddess if Tsukikage dies? <gasps> oh no! That's a good question. That feels like a question from which, you know, the 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 show could mine a lot of drama. <laughs> because clearly, we we don't have enough drama. Of course not. I'm, I mean, I assume at some point in the manga she dies and like wills the rights to Maya. And then that's dramatic. But I highly doubt if the manga did something like that, we would get to it in this anime. <laughs> <laughs> which has put so much emphasis on like you're not you're not ready yet someday you will be but not yet definitely not by the end of this series yeah in that sense if you want to get the most story without reading the manga because it's, it's not like it's an option the 2005 version is very good for that because it has like 15 
fifty episodes. It's、mm. more than twice. It's, it's it's twice as long than this show. That's room to do a lot. Although、yeah. you you did also say it was it adapted things quite a bit more slowly. So six of one, half dozen of the other.、Mm. I mean, I think until a point it's lower, but then it just kind of catches up. Because the play that the eighties version adapts around episode twenty, I think, is the same play the two thousand five version adapts at around also episode twenty or twenty two or so. So it catches up.、Mm, interesting. All right. Well, I really enjoy you giving us kind of these updates on this other version. That if I'm honest, I'm not going to watch. <laughs> I mean,、well. I I'm clearly VAs. I really prefer. Eighties anime in general. I'm not super for super fun of nowadays adaptation. Like that earliest anime era is just not my favorite. If I'm in shallow in terms of style, like I love Oran High School, but I don't love how it looks. <laughs> the 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 two thousands is a very particular style, and Glass Mask two thousand five certainly got、uh, hit with a big old stick of it. Shall we say? Yeah, it feels a little bland. That that was when CG was really starting to take an advent, you know, a, a fully CG animated series, and they looked a little plasticky and flat. A lot of them. Yeah, and have, also, and yeah. also at the time, they were a lot into air air tones. You may notice that a lot of people in this show are blonde and have blue eyes, and in、mm. the adaptations around that time, a lot of people have brown hair. And that's not a bad thing, but in general, it tends to be a little more subdued. Yeah, this Glass Mask eighty four certainly has a lot of impressively bright colors. That、yeah. honestly, I I enjoy. I do. <laughs> yeah, same.、Uh, like, it's my personal aesthetic. So, I mean, not the blondes, but the bright colors. <laughs> <laughs> the bright colors, the shoujo drama, the opening that features strange amounts of aerobics. I don't like the opening. I, I just love, don't like it. I love the opening, but then again, I love movies like Footloose and Flashdance. But I love because of the I love them because of the dancing, not because of their stories. I'm not super. I mean, I'm not super into their romances, for example. But I like the dancing because it's so crazy. It's so athletic. They don't have to go that hard, and yet they always do, and they did it for us. <laughs> If the glass mask opening is not at least somewhat based on the opening to Fame, I will peel off a toenail. <laughs> but, but if I, I just I don't like the way that she's. I know that it was probably an affordability question, but the fact that it's just a figure on a dark background loses all the weight and and power that makes dancing really impressive. So it looks like she's just kind of gesturing in a void, and it looks very unsettling in Uncanny Valley, and I kind of hate it. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was an intentional choice for drama. Like it, it sort of feels like a, a training sequence, and a highly aerobic training sequence rather than an actual performance.、Mm. That actually、yeah. reminds me of something I looked into while watching the show.、Uh, that opening is directed by the show's director, but it's animated. The key animator is a woman named Michi Himeno.、Um, she's mostly known. As a character designer, she actually started out in the seventies with stuff like、uh, Lulun the Flower Child. She was one of three character designers on the Rose of Versailles, but she's mostly、mm. known、uh, since the eighties, around this time, for a lot of shonen 
Uh, she did a lot of work on various Masami Kuramata projects, including, of course, Saint Seiya. She actually did character uh, key animation for both that show's openings. And once again, relevant to your interests, Rai, oh, her most recent project was character designer for Yu-Gi-Oh! Both the Toei Yay! season and the, the Duel Monsters, the postcard game show. Hey! <laughs> I mean, they're very appealing designs. <laughs> I just remember, I think Megan caught a screenshot of a dude wearing a jacket that says, that says yes! Footloose in the yes! show. So they, they definitely had that in mind. Footloose 1984 USA. They just... definitely had that in mind. <laughs> yes. Footloose is not a good movie, but it's also an amazing movie, if you feel me exactly like like i say i'm not exactly super into the stories of those movies but the dancing i love mm-hmm. dancing <laughs> meanwhile when it comes to this show like i i am locked in i am on this ride i am willing to let it take me where it wants to no matter what crazy direction it might go <laughs> <laughs> all right well it looks like we're all geared up for next time then and i hope you are too listeners Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. If you liked what you heard, you can find more podcasts and written work by the team and our contributors at www.animefeminist.com. If you really like what you heard, consider tossing us a dollar on our Patreon, patreon.com slash animefeminist. Even a dollar a month goes a long way to helping us pay for upkeep, pay our contributors, uh, and can, you know, hopefully build up to being able to create a more sustainable base to be able to continue the work that we do. So y'all really mean a lot to us. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook at Anime Femme. We're on Tumblr at Anime Feminist. And we are on Twitter at Anime Feminist. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, keep on sparkling. <laughs>